Welcome to the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. This episode contains a sermon from October 31st by Pastor Randy, titled Revival and Repentance. There are some questions that I have that I'm not sure there's an answer to, if there ever will be an answer to them. But they're questions that get pondered from time to time. Uh, and I'll give you just five of them right now this morning. One of them is, why do we say I slept like a baby when babies wake up every couple of hours? I don't, don't figure that one out. And why do parents say don't take candy from strangers and they celebrate Halloween with their kids? Does that really make a lot of sense? By the way, parents, it's good to teach your kids to tithe and they can tithe their Halloween candy. They can bring it to church next Sunday morning and put it in a box in the back where they get candy out of and maybe provide some adults with some candy that's been giving them candy for years all the time. So teaching your kids to tie their Halloween candy, that's a good thing to do. Uh, and plus, I do get first dibs of that. If I just, yes, all the almond joys will be gone if I can beat out to them. The next question, remember Roadrunner? How could Wiley Coyote spend all that money buying stuff from Acme? Why didn't he just buy himself a chicken dinner instead of chasing Roadrunner around? Just a question. And in another 100 years or so, when we got cars, we're driving at the speed of light. What happens when you turn your headlights on when you're driving at the speed of light? I don't know. Just a question. Uh, but the one in which I ask every couple of years, and I really don't know what the answer, is what does a bald guy put down for his hair color on his driver's license? I mean, you know, I used to put brown in the early days, but I'm thinking I could put blonde, I could put pink, I could put anything I want to, right? So now some questions that I think you know the answer to, but I really want you to ask them to yourself, okay? And think about the answers. We've been over some of these before. How many of you think our culture needs deep change? How many of you think our church needs deep change? And now you know where I'm going. How many of you think you need deep change? Now just stop right there and let that sink in, okay? Because so often that can be a, a simple words that come out, yes, I do. But if you really believe that, maybe there's some things that would be different. But here's the question that we're going to talk about today. How do you accomplish deep change? How do you get to experience revival? And we've been talking about that, humility, honesty, and today to experience deep change, repentance. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 4, 17. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come. There's good news. You can live the life God has always, pl always planned for you to live. You can live the life that he meant for you to live. But in order to do that, you have to get off the throne of your heart and you have to live under his realm, under his kingdom, under his glorious rule in your life. So the good news is you can do that. But to get there, you have to repent. John Wooden, considered one of the greatest basketball coaches of all time, he coached at UCLA. One of his players was Bill Walton. Bill Walton was a three-year All-American, and he won three championships while he was with 
Wooden at UCLA. They won three championships together. Bill Walton was a rebel. He was a hippie. You can look at him today and tell he's still that way. Wooden, he was very straight-laced. He had a rule, in fact, for his team, no facial hair. And then when they were gone for a 10-day break and came back, Bill Walton sporting a beard. And Wooden says, Bill, did you forget something? And Walton says, if you mean my beard, I think it's my right to have one. Wooden says, do you really feel that way? And Walton says, I sure do. So Wooden says, I admire somebody who has convictions and they're willing to stand up for their convictions, but just know we're really going to miss you on our basketball team. Within 10 minutes, Walton shaved his beard off because he understood that if he was going to live under John Wooden's realm, there were some rules he had to live by. He couldn't make all decisions in his life. He had to live by somebody else's rules. And that, in a sense, is, is repentance. If you want to live under God's gracious rule, you're going to have to be doing some repenting. There's going to be a lot of places where you're going to have to get off the throne and allow him to rule in your life. And here's the thing that I want you to understand about repentance. Repentance is a heart issue. Okay? Repentance is a heart issue. You can put a lot of apparatus on an animal, a dog or a horse or whatever, to get them in control, to control them. But what you want, you want that dog's heart. You want that horse's heart. As a parent, you can put enough rules around your kids to control them. But what you want, you want your kid's heart so that when they grow up, they begin to live by the principles that you taught them. And they love you and they want to come back home and see you. Now, here's the thing I want you to understand. When it comes to animals, what we do is we use the word broken for them. And when we say like a horse has been broken, what it means is a horse has surrendered his heart. You don't want a broken-spirited horse. That's a nag. You don't want that. But you want a horse who, who understands what the Bible uses the word meek or power under control, who has surrenders heart. And when a horse is that way, you can be on it and just a little lean in the saddle, just a little shift of his weight, and the horse responds. One of my greatest joys of the job that I had when I was a teenager was working on a ranch. And, and, and my most fun was when we would be working the cattle. We'd be on horses working the cattle. And we'd get the cattle all in this big pen, and we'd have to cut what's called cutting a cow out to do something to the cow. Maybe have to run through the chute to give it a shot or to artificially inseminate or whatever it may be just to work on the cattle. And, and the most fun I ever had was when my boss, we would get in there with the cows. He'd say, let's swap horses. And he would let me ride his prize-winning cutting horse. Because he used to, he did rodeos and stuff in Oklahoma, and he just he this horse, and it was a prize-winning cutting horse. You get on that horse, and you just point the horse toward the cow that you wanted, and then you go shh shh, and those horses' ears would perk up, and you didn't have to do anything. You just hung onto the saddle horn at that point. 
because that horse is going to go after that cow. And cows, they're pretty agile. And the cow goes this way and this way. And the horse is going to be just as quick, even quicker than the cow and going back and forth. So you're just kind of being slung back. You're just kind of hanging on. And that horse will keep on until that cow has been separated from the other cows. My boss had that horse's heart. And we have a lot of people with addictions and brokenness. But their pride, their self-righteousness won't let them admit that God really doesn't have their hearts. People will say, when asked how things are going, oh, they're going fine. They're going good. How's your wife? Fine. How's your kids? Good. How's it? But they'll hide their sin because they don't want to admit that God doesn't have their hearts. See, some people, they'd rather drown than admit they can't swim. Some people, they'd rather drive in their own direction for hours, sometimes days, sometimes decades, or their whole life going in the wrong direction than admit that they're not going in the right direction, than admit that God really doesn't have their hearts. In 2 Chronicles chapter 6, Solomon asked this. He asked God, God, if we walk away from you as a people, if we walk away, can we come back? Is there a way in which you will have us back? And then in chapter 7, verse 14, this is what's answered. You're familiar with this. This is how God answers. God says, if my people who bear my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. So God's saying, look, you want to give me your heart again? You want to become my people again? Here's what you need to do. And so God gives us these things that we need to do. And from this, we can deduct what keeps us from giving God our hearts. What are some things that keep us from giving God our hearts? The first thing is that we refuse to realize the problem is us. We don't want to humble ourselves. We don't want to admit that we have an issue. The first thing that keeps us from coming back to God is a sufficient spirit. I'm okay. I've got everything in control. David talked about this when he was confessing his sin. He says, a broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. People with a broken heart are rare. A broken church is even rare. See, here's the thing about revival. Here's the thing about giving God your heart. It's hard to get where you want to be if you want to admit where you're at right now. We want to say, boy, our culture is decaying all around us. But we don't want to point the finger at ourselves. We don't want to admit that it's an issue within us. The problem is us. Until we're ready to admit that, we're not going to be ready to surrender our hearts to God. So, so the first thing that keeps revival from happening is a sufficient spirit. We don't want to humble ourselves. The second thing is a lack of passion in that list that, that God gave. It says, seek my face. Seek my face. So you can buy a book on revival or read five steps to revival, whatever you want to. It'll never happen because revival is not about organizing. It's about agonizing. It's about God. I've got to have you. I've got to be in your presence of people who are desperate for God 
And their life shows it. If you're away from God and you realize it and you continue life as normal, you're not seeking his face. You're not desperate. It's when you stop and you make the time and you pray and fast and you do all that you can do in order to get it where it should be. Because if you say you're away from God and you just continue life as normal, you're not really going after him, then you don't really believe you're away from God. Go back to the questions. <laughs> do I really need a deep life change or not? And the third thing he says that will keep us from surrendering our hearts to him from revival is, is the lack of repentance. That's what we're going to be talking about today. See, a lot of times where it comes to repentance, here's the thing. We see it different than the way God sees it. Or we define it different than the way God defines it. When, when people think of revival, people think of crowds filling the church. People think of a lot of people coming to Christ. But when God thinks of revival, he thinks of us taking our sin and getting it out there and getting it dealt with. It's like in Elijah's day. You know, they're in a drought. There's a famine because there's a drought and what they think they need. We need rain. What does God send? He sends fire to burn against their sin and to get rid of that sin that's within them. So, we've been here before too. Now, what if I was to preach to you like this? Because our sound system is such, you can hear me just fine. But for us of the sermon, I preach to you like this. You're going to get frustrated. Not the least of which, who wants to look at the back of a bald man's head, for one thing. But you're going to be frustrated because you think, if he wants us to listen, why doesn't he turn around? And that's exactly what God says to us. He's not going to turn to hear or turn to heal or turn to do any of that until we turn to obey. Why do we expect him to, to look in our direction if we won't turn toward him in his direction? That's what God's intention is, is for us to get serious about repentance and surrender our hearts. So you know the story out of Luke. A man has two sons. One of them come and asks for his, his uh, inheritance. The father gives it to him. He goes out and he blows it in wild living. He just parties it all away. And all of a sudden there's a famine in that land and he's left with nothing and he's out there feeding the pigs. His life's a mess. Here's where we pick up the story in Luke. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed, to feel, he longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. Oh. So all of a sudden he's had this sudden awareness. I'm in not a good spot. This is a bad place in my life. This is a terrible place to be at in life. So he has this awareness. And then he says, I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer to be worthy. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So now not only has he got this awareness of, man, my life is messed up. 
He's being honest. I've sinned against God and against my father. So he's got this awareness. My life's in a bad spot. He's being honest about it, but everything turns on his next four words. So he got up. If he hadn't done those next four words, who cares that he's aware that his life is messed up? Who cares he's honest about why his life is messed up? You have to be willing to do something about it. And that's what he does. Let me, let me help by a common illustration. A couple of years ago, we're having a funeral here. And, and so I, I go and I get one of my suits to put on and I go to put the pants on and it's not happening. So I suck it in and I finally get that snap right together and you got a snap and a button on the suit pants and, and I think, okay, they're not going to pop because it's got a little buttons like kind of little safety things mess up. So I'm good, but I don't think I can hold my breath like this all day long. Not only that, I think I'm losing the feeling in my legs because things are just too tight. And I have this sudden awareness. I'm in a mess. This is not working. And then I'm honest. It's because I'm fat because I have stopped eating the way I should and I'm not exercising the way I should. There's a sense of honesty. But the truth is that this really has an effect on my life is what happens next morning when my clock is set at 5.30 to go off and begin exercising. What do I do then? Do I just hit snooze or do I get up and do something about it? Or, well, somebody spoke up. <laughs> that was a bad illustration to use. Or I'm going to eat. And I think I'm going to eat healthy. I'm going out to eat. I'm going to order something healthy. I think I'm going to order a salad and open up the menu. And they've got two for one appetizers. And I think, oh, to be a good steward of God, I should get the two for one appetizers. So I should get the cheesy fries and the chocolate dipped egg rolls and, and enjoy that. And I'll go on my diet tomorrow. Isn't that what we do? We, we, we put it off. We know what we should do and we're, we know there's a problem and we know what, know what the problem is, but we don't ever do anything about it. And when you're a Christian and you're caught in that place right there where you know the problem, you identify a problem and you're honest about it, but you don't do anything, here's the thing that happens. There's an underlying sense of fatigue. You just live drained. It's, it's like you're going to run a marathon and you never have train for it. You get out there to run the marathon and, and the gun goes off and you just start doing like this. You know you're not going to win, but you know, at least I can finish the marathon or so you think. In the first half a mile, you're thinking, boy, it's slow pace. I think I might be able to do this. But just shortly after that, I mean, you're, you're, your heart's just pounding. Everything's starting to ache. And you realize that your heart is not conditioned to run the marathon. You're trying to live a life that your heart's not conditioned to do. That will wear you out as a Christian. That you're trying to, to, to live a life, a Christian life, but you have never surrendered your heart to God. Your heart is not conditioned to live that life. And you will be worn out. Well, being a hypocrite's exhausting. And it will wear you out. It's like when I had to get up for, I don't know, it was 
about a year or so where I was working a shift where I had to be there at four o'clock in the morning. And I didn't know how tired I was all day till I got off that shift. And I goes, oh, man. I didn't realize how exhausting that it was to, to work those hours, to get off at four, be at class by eight in the morning, and, or work at four, get off, leave well, as soon as I could, and, and be at class. Just, it was just an exhausting schedule. That's what it's like. So here's the thing. When are you going to get up and do something? That's what, that's what the, the call to repentance is. When are you going to actually get up and do something? When are you going to call that friend up and, and admit, you know, hey, I've got a problem. I've got this addiction in my life. I've got this difficulty in my life. And we're going to do something about it. We're going to do something about it today. When are you going to go to the friend and say, okay, here's my credit cards. Here's my debit card. I can't keep track of my money. I'm not being a good faithful steward with my money. I'm all messed up inside out where money's concerned. We're going to do something about it right now. Here's my cars. Let's walk through this. Or I'm so tired of how bitterness and anger and gossip has, has broken every relationship I have in my life. No more. We're going to do something about today. Or how about you know God wants you to get out of that relationship and you just keep putting it off and putting it off and you say, no more. I'm getting out of that relationship right now today. Or for some of you, it could be even the invitation at the end of the service. I know God wants me to do something, but I'm going to do it today. I'm going to make that decision today. And why do we do that? Why do we put things off? Because in our mind, everything has to be lined up just right. You know, until these situations, these, these things in my life get lined up just right, then I'll do something. Till then, it's just a little bit too awkward. It's going to always be awkward. There will never be an unawkward time for you to say, I'm going to follow through with repentance. I'm going to get off the throne of my life and start living under God's rule in my life. I'm going to surrender my heart to him. Probably one of the most awkward times of repentance is the story of Jonah. Because here he is going to preach. He doesn't want these people to repent. His heart's not in it. And what's his message? Repent. 40 days, you're going to die. Just in that culture, awkward for this Hebrew to go to Nineveh and even expect they're going to listen to him and not just decide to kill him. I mean, everything's just awkward. But here's what we read. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, and this is Jonah, the word that Jonah was preaching, he got off his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh by order of the king and his nobles. No person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent and he may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. King's serious. He even makes the animals repent. Don't even let the animals drink or eat anything. 
And I used to read that and go, what's going on? And then I realized he's so serious about repentance, he wants it to cover every area of their life. He doesn't want a chance of leaving anything out. And I thought, how refreshing. Somebody who's willing to go overboard where repentance is concerned. You know what I deal with so often? People head in this direction. They need to repent and go the other way. And they'll do, they'll do this and go, I repented. No, you haven't. You still got friends. You still got those. Two. You haven't repented yet. But he's, he's saying, we're, going, we're not going to leave anything to chance. This is going to be a complete repentance. There's going to be no doubt. He's going overboard in it. So how do you know you repented? You know you repented when you stop giving rationalizations. It's someone else's fault. Wasn't really what I did. You begin to rationalize it. Then you say, no, from now on, rationalizations are gone. I'm going to stop giving any more rationalizations about this. You also know repented when you don't want to hide your sin anymore. You refuse to care what people think. You don't want to hide it at all or, or, or make sure that you don't want, you're not concerned about even having the consequences hide anymore. You're just going to get it out there. See, so many times we're worried more about having our sin out there than, than getting healed. We fear the consequences of confession more than we fear the consequences of concealment. The reason why is because we never experienced the full-blown consequences of concealment. See, the consequences of confession are pretty simple. It's tangible, it's immediate, and it'll involve a handful of people. But the consequences of concealment, that's not tangible. You can't see all those areas. They're not that, they're not just out there where you can see them. And, and where the consequences of confession are immediate, the consequences of concealment, that may run through your whole life. And where confessing will affect a handful of people, concealment will affect every relationship you have. It's like a splinter. You got to get that thing out so there can be some healing. But we want to hide it. No, I don't have anything wrong with me. And what happens? It just continues to fester and it begins to affect everything, not just your finger. It starts into your hand. It starts into your body. Satan wants you to say, just hide that sucker. Don't let anybody know. God says, no, you need to get that out there where there can be some, some healing. You don't need to conceal this. You need to confess it. It was mutual prayer and confessing that fueled the revival that swept across England in the 1700s. That's the whole Methodist movement. The whole Methodist movement was fueled by confession and prayer. The Shangtung revival in China, that began in the 40s when some American missionaries began confessing their sins to one another. The third thing, if you know your repentance is real, you don't deal with just what you did, but the dirt on your heart that caused you to do what you did. In other words, you begin living an outward life that's reflecting in what's going on, on the inside. There's something going on, on the inside at transformation, so then it just works its way out of your life. 
But a lot of people, they just want to deal with what they did, but they don't want to take their hard work and deal with what was on their heart that caused them to do what they did. But if you're repentant, you're going to be dealing with what was on your heart that caused you to get there. And the, the next thing is you're going to live a changed life. A changed life. Here's what we read in Jonah. God saw their actions. He saw their actions. Things had changed, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from their disaster. He had threatened with them, and he did not do it. He saw what they did. See, repentance is observable. Okay? It's something that you can see. Here's what we read in Acts 26. So then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first and to those in Jerusalem and in all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. Repentance is observable. It can be seen. It's accompanied by action. So it's my hope that we'll stop hitting the snooze button and be people who are ready to actually do something. Because you can admit you have a problem and you can be honest about it. It's me, it's me. God needs to do something in me. But if you never do anything about it, that's exhausting. It's an exhausting life to live. Ruth Crawford, for 50 years, she was blind. Then she had a surgery that enabled her to see. But the thing about this, that surgery was available 20 years earlier. So for 20 years, she walked around needlessly blind. Why would you want to keep walking around in darkness? You remember when Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, and Pharaoh said no, and so the 10 plagues came? One of those plagues was frogs. Frogs everywhere. Frogs in their kitchen, in their refrigerator, in their pantry, in their bedroom, underneath their sheets, in their shower, in their chariot, everywhere. Frogs were everywhere. And so Pharaoh calls, calls Moses in and says, okay, get rid of the frogs. Moses says, okay. Tell me, when do you want God to get rid of the frogs? Pharaoh, you say the time. That way you know this is no trick. You say the time. When do you want God to get rid of the frogs? What does Pharaoh say? Anybody know? Huh? The next day? Yeah, tomorrow. Tomorrow. Why would you want to spend another night with the frogs? Why? Why would you want to spend another night in darkness and with the frogs? Why wouldn't you want to do something about it now? When God looks at us, that's where the, why would you want to keep on going and keep on experiencing the brokenness, the addictions, the pain in your life? Why not do something about it now? Our common answer, it's not me. It's those People outside the church. It's not me. It's those other people in the church. We'll do anything rather than go back to our first question. Do you believe you need deep change? No, our culture needs deep change. Our church needs deep change, but not us. That first part, you've got to be able to, to humble yourself. See, it's so 
It's so ingrained in us that whenever somebody wants to back us up in a corner and say, oh, there's, we as a Christian culture, every one of us, we need to change. We immediately default to, yeah, but I'm not so bad. Yeah, but probably then. We don't want to keep the finger on us. We don't want to admit to God that we have, we don't want to admit that we have not surrendered our hearts to God. We don't want to admit that. You want revival? Repentance. Humility, honesty, repentance. And guess when repentance starts? Does it start tomorrow? Today is a day of salvation. If you know and you're aware that you, you, you've been honest with yourself and you're aware of stuff in your life that needs to change and you want to think, okay, I'll start on this tomorrow. That's not the Holy Spirit that's saying that to you. The Holy Spirit always says today. Today is a day of salvation. Today is a day to get right. It's, it's what the king understood in Jonah's day in Nineveh. As soon as he heard the message, he says, no, you tell everybody, this is my idiot. This is what we're going to do today. So the question is, are you ready to surrender your heart to God? Are you ready to admit that he doesn't have your heart? Or are you just not too bad of a Christian? You have a few things. Of course, everybody has a few things, right? We're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. That will not bring about revival. That will not bring about what we need. It ought to be obvious. You can't look at our culture and say, everything's doing fine. And you can't look at our culture and say, it's a culture's problem and not mine. Can't do that. Just does not add up. That type of math does not work as far as God is concerned. Because we're a culture under the wrath of God right now. And the only reason we're under the wrath of God is because of God's people have refused to give them their hearts for decades now in our culture. It's because we have refused to repent. We don't want to surrender our hearts. But you can change that anytime you want. But if you want to keep putting it off, you're just going to, it's going to wear you out. Fatigue will sit in. Because you're trying to live a life that your heart's not conditioned to do. Okay. I'm like Jonah. I can only give you the word of God. I can't make anything happen. But unlike Jonah, my heart's not against this. My heart's all in on this. My prayer in my life for a long time, God, what do you need to do in me? God, show me, work in me, God, show me those places. Because I can't, it's, there has to be, I, I can't say, okay, God, I've got, you know, those big sins. They're not in my life right now. I'm, I'm a pretty good guy, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm walk in purity. I, I have concern here. I, I love people. I love your word. 
That doesn't cut it. It has to be obvious to us, every one of us. I don't get a pass. You don't get a pass. Nobody gets a pass in our culture. There's not a single family in our whole culture that hasn't experienced brokenness in some degree. And we want to give ourselves passes. That doesn't work. Doesn't work. We have to be a people who say, yes, I'm ready to give my heart to God. I'm ready to admit, I'm going to be honest, admit that God doesn't have my heart and I want to surrender to him right now. That's where it starts. Nowhere else. Thank you for tuning into the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. For more information, check out our website at gbcak.org.